Science is the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everybody. Welcome to May's installment of Blue SciCon. This is the podcast series that features the uh, ideas, philosophies, and research of the members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out on the web at bmsis.org, and you can listen to previous editions of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. If you're out listening in podcast land, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email, podcast at bmsis.org. We love to feature tasty beverages on our show, so please send us any recipes for beverages you have, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, morning, evening, nighttime, noon, whenever you like to have your beverages. Uh, please send us beverages, send us ideas for the show, podcast at bmsas.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today, we have a very special show. We're joined by Kamir Hayam, who is our essay contest winner, the very first essay contest winner of the very first essay contest that BMSAS sponsored. Um, Kamir's essay is titled Redesigning Human Motivation and Aiming for the Stars. And with this essay contest, our goal was really to stimulate undergraduate students in thinking about the long-term future of the Earth system and how space exploration may play a role in that. And um, so, Kamir, you know, th welcome. Thanks for joining us. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your idea and how this all came to fruition. Thanks so much for all of BMSIS for sponsoring such an awesome competition for undergrads to start thinking about the future of humanity. It was really fun to participate in. Uh, and so, yeah, my name is Kamir, and I'm an undergrad in biochemistry at Kennesaw State University and um, very interested in space science. And so when I saw the contest, I was really excited to get involved in it. And the general idea behind my essay was that money systems are a human construct, which can be manipulated as a tool for social engineering to incentivize particular types of behavior and using alternative currency to somehow greatly increase funding to STEM research, and in particular, space science and space exploration could lead to the best possible future for humanity. And so that was the general idea of my, my essay. It focused on complementary currency research. And the reason I'm familiar with that is because my godfather, Bernard Leotard, is one of the world leaders in complementary currency research. And although it's never really been, hasn't really made it to science and technology yet. so unleashing the power of incentivizing science and technology, I thought could be a really interesting potential for the future of humanity, because I think science is the really the biggest driver for civilization's advancement. So I think this is a really interesting idea, not one that I've really encountered before, especially among scientists. So maybe for our, our listeners, and, and even for me, since this is something that's a little bit different from what I usually think about, you know, what exactly is complementary currency? And maybe more, more generally, like how, does, how do you get a new form of complementary currency? How does it emerge into the marketplace? And how, does, how do you get people to take something like this seriously and make it, make it viable in the marketplace? 
from the very loose definition of a complementary currency is just an agreement to accept legal tender in parallel with conventional money. There are many, many examples. Examples are the, the best way for me to, for me also to understand what complementary currency is, as I don't really have that much of a background in economy, economics. The one we're most familiar with is our, our frequent flyer miles, which we're able to accrue frequent flyer miles from using the same group of airlines repeatedly. And that fosters the particular behavior of returning to that airline every time you fly so that you can get more miles and then spend them probably on the same airline. So that fosters brand loyalty, which in terms of the future of human civilization isn't all that interesting, but it illustrates an example of what complementary currency is. One of the examples that I spoke about in the essay is American physicist Will Ruddick, who actually seems, seems like he got his master's degree in higher energy physics and then worked in that for a few years and then decided to volunteer for the Peace Corps. And he went over to Kenya. And in Mombasa, Kenya, he decided to implement a small local currency in some of the poorest slums of Mombasa. Basically, it was a voucher system where people within the community could be able to receive vouchers for engaging in civic activities, such as cleaning up, cleaning up their neighborhoods, planting trees, getting involved in education. And so they could receive these vouchers for contributing to their communities, and then they could spend these vouchers at local stores. And these local stores could then take those vouchers and exchange them with the local, with the national government for actual real money. And some, some statistics about what happened in three months of using this currency called EcoPesa. With $350 of EcoPesa vouchers in circulation, they stimulated over $4,000 of trading. 75 local businesses were involved, 20,000 local residents, and the result was 22% average increase in net monthly incomes for all the participating businesses. That was just over three months, so they had a great success. And it seems like uh, Mr. Will Ruddick has completely given up on his career of higher energy physics, and he's, according to LinkedIn, now he is still in Kenya and has become an advocate for complementary currencies, an advisor for that. So that's an example of, in a very small community, in great need of what complementary currencies could do. That's making this jump to civilization-wide implementation of complementary currencies seems like a huge leap. But there's another example in Switzerland. The weir is a complementary currency that has been in existence in Switzerland since the 1930s. And a economist, Dr. James Stodder of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, has analyzed the weir and how it contributes to the, the stability of the Swiss economic system as a whole. And he attributes the weir to be a major part of the Swiss stability as a nation in comparison to its neighbors. One of its neighbors is Italy, who are notoriously not doing so well financially. And so the weir is basically an agreement between businesses. It's kind of the same as Swiss francs. One Swiss franc equals one weir. And a business, if they had no reserves of Swiss francs, they could make an agreement to trade goods or services with another business. That business would take that weir as, as a debt, and it could then use the weir to trade with other participating businesses. It's pretty much the same as, as money just between, lo or between national businesses. And it started in the 1930s with only 16 members, and today includes over 62,000 businesses with assets of approximately 3 billion Swiss francs and annual sales in 2005 of 6.5 billion Swiss francs. So that has become a huge part of Swiss business. And 
the, the main thing that um, Dr. Stoddard talked about was that in times of economic hardship, businesses can rely on the weir to trade within themselves. And in times of hardship, they preferentially use the weir. However, in times of financial well-being, they greatly prefer to use the Swiss franc because they can also use the Swiss franc internationally. The fact that the two exist, the two money systems coexist, he says, offers resilience to the system as a whole. So those are two big examples that have been discussed in peer-reviewed articles and have a lot of statistics to show how successful they've been. That's really interesting. So it sounds like you, you can set up a complementary currency in a way, I mean, in the examples you said, they are, they're motivating, you know, sort of a, a support the local economy, local businesses type of behavior, where by not being of use anywhere else other than a certain restricted area, you're really extending almost a new, well, it's a new form of debt, not really like credit because you're not paying any interest, but it's, it's, it's basically creating a new form of debt in a local economy, which then makes sense what you said, why it would be more useful in a recession than in, in a prosperous time. So I'm trying to think, how could that device be used to motivate investment in technology or interest in space exploration? I mean, investment in technology, maybe not even that, because there's a return on investment there. But with space, the hard part is you don't get a big return on investment, at least right away, because you're exploring. So what were your, your thoughts on how this type of device could motivate interest in, in some of these these less uh, applied topics. Yeah, so, I mean, as an aspiring scientist myself, I'm going to be applying to grad schools in the fall, and I'm already acutely aware of the uh, issues in, in funding, uh, fighting for funding in academic research for science. And so I, I did find a study. So, so complementary currencies have not really been implemented in scientific research, really. However, from speaking with a lot of my mentors, not many people seem too happy to be in the current system of government funding and fighting for fighting for every dollar. And in, in this publish or die uh, system, where a lot of a lot of really amazing research cannot get funded because maybe it's a bit too, bit too long term goals, and and those funding it can't really see uh, how they can get a return quickly enough. But there is a researcher psychologist who thought that it might be an interesting idea. He's a Belgian psychologist. Ironically, Bernard is also a Belgian, so perhaps Belgians have some, maybe it's their beer, I don't know. This professor of psychology published a theoretical framework suggesting an alternative for scientific research funding. And he's basically talking about allocating a fixed annual payment to all researchers it seems pretty radical, but also pretty awesome, with the stipulation that a percentage of that money must be redistributed to other researchers. And he, he studies search engines and, and social media and such like that. So he was inspired by mathematical modeling of internet searching. And he suggests that this idea would promote global cooperation and innovation and that funding may be able to converge on promising projects and allow for more ambitious, long-term projects to get funding that would otherwise be completely ignored in the current in the current realm of academic funding. Complementary currency really has not entered the realm of science funding. And this is pretty much the only idea I found about that. But it's also pretty clear to me in my limited experience so far in research that not everyone is happy with the way in particular academic research is funded. 
a lot of things are hindered due to the lack of funding available and everybody battling for it. I don't exactly have an answer for how, how we could totally stimulate space science, but I did talk about in the essay, the most incredible example of pushing forward space science was, of course, the landing on the moon when US uh, when NASA was founded. I guess we were uh, propelled forward by, by the Cold War, which we don't really want to have that happen again to stimulate space exploration. But the most substantial financial support of science in human history provided the most profound leap forward in technological achievement within a decade when percentage of total government spending went from 0.1% to 4.41% of total government spending, which isn't even, doesn't seem like all that much to me at 4.41% doesn't seem like all that much of the total government spending to me. And yet we were able to achieve so much with that over such a short period of time. And it would be incredible if we could harness that again, perhaps through the use of complementary currencies. Although again, I don't exactly know what type of framework would have to be built, but it's clear that not everyone is happy with the current framework and that we could do so much. Yeah. Uh, Sandra has a question. So could, could complementary currencies increase and decrease in value with time as politics change? I mean, does it behave kind of like any other currency markets? Yeah, presumably. Yeah. One of the questions that you, this may be a good time to address one of the questions that you said, number four, which was about complementary currencies leading to an economic bubble followed by a market collapse. I did find an uh, and yes, cryptocurrencies are apparently a complementary currency. It's just anything that anything that functions in parallel with conventional currency. I found an interesting article about Japan. Japan is the world leader in complementary currencies. Apparently, around 2005 or 2003, they had over 600 complementary currency systems in place. Most of them very small scale, nevertheless present. It seems like the, the article that I found by a Japanese author attributed the birth of all these complementary currency systems to the popularity of an NHK documentary about complementary currency systems in, I believe, 1999. And since then, there's been a huge influx of, of people trying to do that. Although some of them are successful, the most popular one in Japan is taking care of elderly people. They have the, the world's largest, most growing elderly population, so they need to take care of them. However, not everyone lives near their elders, so you can take care of elders in your area and earn credits, which you can then spend on care for your family elders, which are in a different area of the country. And that is their most famous type of complementary currency in Japan. However, the article that I found in particular was a bit, was, wasn't overly positive about the role of so many complementary currencies in Japan. And they said that it, it did experience a huge boom. And now they're, a lot of them are kind of falling off. The whole system was not very well organized. Not everyone was speaking with, speaking with each other or communicating with Western researchers either. They ended up even also implementing some very bizarre complementary currency networks using like old coins and, and brown rice. And he didn't seem to too happy about all of these things in existence and that now their usage for many of them has been falling off. That's an example of a huge boom happening. Perhaps it really wasn't very well organized, concerted effort by the government. It seemed to be a lot of individuals getting excited about a documentary and, and, and doing a lot of things. The government apparently made some, some laws where anyone could create. They, the government made it very easy for citizens to make complementary currencies. And perhaps that was the flaw in the system. 
they didn't really regulate everything very well. It would obviously take a lot of work to really grow a network of, of complementary currencies, I, I think. Makes sense. That makes sense. It sounds like there's, there's some forms of complementary currency. That's a really interesting example, the elder care, by the way. I think that that's kind of a neat thing that you wouldn't think of that necessarily as a currency, but the way you describe it, it completely makes sense. It's a credit and exchange system of some sort. But so something like that is very particular to one one activity, taking care of elders, whereas the, the credits you would get from that, you can't go buy groceries with it, you can't pay for your electricity or anything else like that. Whereas something mm -hmm. like Bitcoin, which if I understand correctly, Bitcoin is also a complementary currency, um, but that seems to have a lot more widespread acceptance. Do you know much about Bitcoin? Because my knowledge isn't really very in-depth no. either. Um, but that seems to be one of the most prominent new forms of currency that's that's appeared on the internet recently. I don't I don't know all that much about it, but the idea in general, I guess the one thing I haven't spoken about yet is that some of the research that forms the foundation of the essay that I wrote was that ecology some ecologists and economists came together to study the mathematics that underlie sustainability within complex flow networks, which could be they, they specifically looked at ecosystems and they followed a carbon transfer between organisms and defined limiting window of vitality where systems were most resilient to change, most sustainable. And that window tells you basically that complex flow networks are most stable when there are a multitude of, of components acting in cohesive manner. However, you can't have too few or too many. They've said that this should also be the case for an economy. So I found that a very interesting conclusion to make. And perhaps it may also relate to the work of, of Dr. Walker, who was on the last episode. She said she was looking at the mathematics of life systems, although in this case, they've gone a little bit larger scale to look at ecosystems as a whole. To translate the sustainability of an ecosystem to an economy, I found is a very interesting concept. And that formed the foundation that uh, assuming that that is true formed the foundation of my essay that theoretically we should have a thriving ecosystem of currencies where things that are currently not incentivized by our global monoculture of money can then be can a lot of things could be improved if we could focus on other things that are currently not profitable at all that's really interesting so myrna has a question comment um how would that work in sciences, trading services and supplies for novel research that isn't being funded? Or a lab helps another lab with limited funds for credit? How or where could they cash that credit? And I think that's an open question, as you've mentioned. I mean, those aren't even bad ideas. That could be interesting if you had some sort of grad student rotation where you sent the student away for a semester somewhere to do work and you got a student in exchange. I mean, that that's a very small way of looking at this. but in, in in theory, that could work. Um, but yeah, Myrna raises some good questions. Um, I think one of the main problems from, from when I was writing this essay, also talking with uh, my research professor at, at my university and some of my mentor professors, science is incredibly expensive, the, the equipment in particular. And so how, how, can you, how can you fund all that? There are some examples, like I, I did mention the the previous example of an alternative to funding if every researcher got a certain amount of money and then could then redistribute it among exciting projects. There are some complementary currency systems being thought about in education, 
and perhaps in some time they will start to be applied to uh, more higher level education. I find them pretty inspiring and they're also relevant to the Kickstarter campaign that uh, BMSIS just launched about mentoring students in STEM. So there are a few education um, complementary currency systems. One of them in Mexico is called the Progresa, and it's basically a conditional cash transfer to very poor parents of families and that would otherwise have taken their children out of school and have them working. Instead of taking their children out of school to work to help contribute to the family income, the government is giving cash, a cash transfer to the parents of an equivalent amount of what it would cost to keep the students uh, or if they were working. So to keep the students in school and they're required to attend and go to health clinic visits and stuff like that. But then the families will get an incentive to keep their kids in school. And there's also some new frameworks presented about educational currencies as well. One of them is called the saber, which means knowledge in Portuguese. And in Brazil, the idea is that students at a very young age in maybe kindergarten, they are given a certain amount of this currency, saber, and then they have to spend it on getting mentoring from older students. And so the older students get these credits called saber, and then older students are incentivized to mentor younger students. And these younger students keep getting a certain amount of credits every year, I believe. And then ultimately, these mentors, when they get to university level, they are able to use these credits, these saber credits, to actually pay for university tuition, which which is an pretty awesome idea. And I believe it's currently in like the pilot project phase. That's like maybe one level below academic research, but it's it's at least incentivizing people to to learn and uh, to really focus on their learning. And one of the other things is that when you are in that tutoring position, I like to think of it as the Jedi Padawan relationship. I've I've gained so much from it from my researchers and apparently the the one who is in the Jedi position also in in explaining complex material, especially as a an aspiring student, you retain much more by having to put it in your own terms and make sure that a, a younger person can understand it. So I think that's a really awesome system. Again, it doesn't exactly answer the question of how we can fund really expensive science, but perhaps it's but approaching. It's close. I think that's really close. That's, that's a model for education that you could translate into you know, being a grad student and going to get your master's or PhD in a research environment. I mean, yeah, it's not exactly, it doesn't tell you how to get to Mars with complementary currency, but that's that's actually really promising. I like that a lot. I'll be, think, I'll be thinking about that for a bit, actually. That's a really interesting model that I never would have thought of. Grasshopper has a comment here. Uh, so Bitcoin exchanges are popping up, and along with it, cyber fraud is collapsing, uh, is collapsing trading platforms. Also, with anything that generates the movement of wealth, governments are drafting regulations and finding ways to tax this dark market. Could you comment on government regulation of complementary currencies and opinions regarding whether it's beneficial or it's hampering their evolution? I qualify all of my economic statements by the fact that I have no background in economics, just biochemistry. But it seems from my from my um, research and speaking with my godfather, who is uh, who knows a lot about economics, it seems like like in Switzerland. That seemed the, the example I spoke of, the weir, was a very successful implementation of complementary currency. And the government 
had to be involved to to make sure things didn't run awry, I suppose. And the conversely, in Japan, where government the government was basically gave them free reign to create whatever they wanted. I mean, it didn't really cause much much chaos. It just created a bunch of flops that didn't that that didn't really do much of anything. So I think I think it's really important for local governments and national governments to help really structure these these complementary currencies currencies when they're implemented because otherwise they they may not actually accomplish anything. I think there needs to be a great amount of structure. I mean, presumably in in Japan they presumably had creative free reign and it didn't seem to work. Creativity is I always think is amazing, but in this case I seem to be saying that it may be better to have more strict regulations at least in the beginning. I mean, to some extent you need either government or some other fairly well-established structured organization to to issue some sort of complementary currency. So whether maybe some regulations may hamper their their development, but at the same time you sort of have to rely on government a little bit in order to make these things work, or at least in some in some in many cases. This is this is quite interesting. This is a topic that I've not you know thought about at this at this level at all. So everybody else, is there any other uh, questions for for Kamir? Anybody have anything they're burning to ask? I can ask you just one question. What do you think are some interesting steps in the near term exploration of space? Just what's your personal interest that, that you're watching to wait and see where human exploration takes us next? Oh, that that reminded me that technically technically the Mars 1 thing, which I think is it seems pretty insane. So technically they they're trying to fund their whole thing with television revenue. I suppose that's that's kind of an example of at least an alternative source of funding for science. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I'm I'm somewhat skeptical that they will make yeah. it work, but kudos to them for trying. Yeah, it's so and and also the fact that we have visionaries like Elon Musk translating space exploration to the private sector, they have a little bit more freedom and he has a lot of money and he seems pretty adamant on getting us to Mars, which I would love to see. And uh, in the end of my essay, I took, I took a bit of liberties in, in, so I, I, I mentioned earlier the fact that we, we increased the U S national budget to NASA to 4.41%, which still to me doesn't seem like that much. And if we were able to do something like that in the future, there, there's a lot of, ideas that are currently relegated to the realms of more science fiction like like the space elevator which i believe perhaps it may also be a form of alternative currency there's some kind of pri- prize available for making advancements on space elevator technology i think they have like a contest every year in the desert somewhere where they use climbers and and they there's a huge prize available for people that can develop the proper material to actually build a space elevator and things like that if we could enhance funding in science, it'd be pretty remarkable to see what we could actually do. Like you said, the things that things that are happening in space right now are really, really exciting. I'm primarily interested in the astrobiology side of things with with more potentially habitable satellites in our own in our own solar system, potentially habitable exoplanets around the galaxy. It's all a very, very exciting time. I just wish I was maybe five hundred years later, provided we don't 
destroy ourselves, I assume that would be the time when we could uh, actually make it to another planet, maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> that's, well, thank you. They, that, that's a great answer. Um, 500 years, could we make it somewhere? Well, maybe if we start coming up with a uh, interesting complementary currency system now, then we can start investing in the kind of space travel we'll need so that our grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren can maybe travel into space. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Kamir. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks again for your essay. Congratulations again. This has been a really, really interesting conversation that I think we're all going to be thinking a lot about and uh, talking about in the future. Listeners, thanks again for joining us. This has been Blue PsyCon. Um, you can check us out online at emsis.org slash podcast. We'll see you again next Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.